From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Office of Personnel Management says it'll meet its October deadline for providing access to paid parental leave. The National Treasury Employees Union had concerns about the agency's ability to meet the deadline. Federal News Network reports most employees will be able to take up to 12 weeks of paid parental leave. Nine new job opportunities are available now for Cyber Reskilling Academy graduates. The temporary jobs would help the graduates expand their skills and try out cybersecurity jobs. NextGov reports the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Department of Veterans Affairs, and Environmental Protection Agency all have posted jobs. The Cyber Solarium Commission wants the Department of Commerce to open up a Bureau of Cyber Statistics. The new office would work to identify metrics and data to measure cyber risks. NextGov reports the commission has 80 recommendations for Congress in its report. The Office of Personnel Management wants agencies to prepare federal employees for telework because of the coronavirus outbreak. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is testing its systems for a large-scale telework scenario in case of an emergency. Mika Cross is federal workplace expert. Mika, welcome back. You've been singing the telework song for the 10 or 12 years that I've known you. Yeah. This is the moment, I guess, that you've been hoping that agencies would prepare for, right? Unfortunately, not under these circumstances. Yeah, really. Yes. I mean, we've been preparing agencies since well before even the Telework Enhancement Act was passed in 2010. You know, FlexiPlace, to telework, to telecommuting, um, remote work and remote access policies have been in place for more than 30 years mm -hmm. in the government. This is nothing new. Um, what is new, though, is the need to test the systems and get it right right now yep. for emergency purposes. Mm -hmm. Should have been doing this a long, long time ago. Well, I know that you won't, don't want to be the person saying tisk tisk to federal agencies yeah. for not doing it, but we, you talked about some metrics before we went on the air. There are some important numbers that indicate, it sounds to me, this is my read, not your words, the government's not prepared for this. Yeah, it's a little alarming. You know, the last OPM telework data report for Congress cited that less than 50% of the entire federal workforce was even eligible or considered eligible to telework. That said, how they define eligibility was really up to agency to agency. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of discrepancy there. If it were me, that's where I'd look for first is mm -hmm. the definition of telework because we did this in the, you know, after 9-11, the intelligence community even, for positions of national security that had some some portions of their work that could be done in an unclassified environment, we renegotiated the definition of eligibility mm -hmm. such that if you could telework even just a portion of one work day in an entire year, you in fact were eligible. Mm -hmm. Going back to the basics and look at that first in your policies to see how could we recategorize people and also thinking creatively about what work is and what work isn't is going to be absolutely ne necessary right now. I'm not an attorney, but some of my best friends are lawyers, and that word considered eligible strikes me as the distinguishing characteristic there. Yeah, I, I think so, absolutely. Because, again, how certain organizations are defining eligibility looks a lot differently. I think originally when they were rolling out policies after the Telework Enhancement Act, agencies might have been concerned about the fact that if you were deemed eligible, that meant that you were going to automatically be eligible for regular and recurring or fixed telework. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. There are many different categories of telework, from situational to emergency telework, unscheduled telework, mm -hmm. and then regular recurring 
reoccurring, meaning you're eligible to do it on a fixed schedule kind of arrangement. All right, another number that I scribbled down as you were telling me yeah. about it before we went on, 60% of agencies had telework as part of a continuity of operations. That's plan. right, and that's self-reported. So only 60% yeah. of our federal agencies even cited that they had telework as a component of their continuity of operations plans. That's pretty alarming in my, mm -hmm. in my mind. And if they're not already working with the IT shops and the CIOs to ensure that the infrastructure can you know, support the bandwidth and capacity of which we'll be expecting people to work from home, that's another consideration because access is necessary, communications is necessary, and then of course being able to conduct your work as best as possible in a seamless environment from wherever you're working from is absolutely necessary to make this a success. I try to be the glass half full guy, but when you say 60% of agencies had a telework plan, that sounds okay until you think about the reverse of that, which is that 40% of agencies didn't cite telework as part of their coup. 40% didn't. And in addition to that, those who were deemed eligible, about a quarter of a percent even were teleworking with some regularity, meaning the rest of those that were deemed eligible were only eligible for situational telework. Mm -hmm. With all the latest restrictions over the past several years around telework and inhibit inhibitions around implementing it, we don't know how often they are even well-practiced enough to mm -hmm. continue operations in an environment like this. So what's step one, two, and three for an organization that is looking at what's happening in the world. We learned yesterday the NBA is canceling the rest of the season, at least postponing it indefinitely is the right term. I apologize. But, I mean, this is turning into a serious thing. It is. Um, I think the good news is, is that many agencies have policies in place, so start there, number one. How are you defining eligibility? Expand it now. Determine how many of your workers are already on telework agreements and how many of those who you are now defining as eligible, meaning any portion of your workday, then they need to be categorized as eligible for telework and get on a telework agreement. Mm -hmm. Training for managers and then practicing. Right now, even while you're still working from a brick and mortar organization, you could be testing the capacity. You could be logging in remotely and conducting meetings and making sure that your employees understand how to leverage the kinds of technology and communications measures mm -hmm. that are in place even from a traditional office environment so that then when they do deploy back to a different location and for you know positions of national security that might just mean a different infrastructure or federal building potentially mm -hmm. not from home of course because some positions really are not able to be done in a work from home scenario mm -hmm. they could potentially be done in a different alternative location though mm -hmm. um, so this too shall pass and it's important i think to approach this the same way we've talked about shutdowns mm -hmm. ad infinitum for the last several years eventually this will go away and we'll kind of go back to normal what should be top of mind for managers and leaders at agencies as they think about okay what if this happens again the same way we approach the shutdown idea what should we be preparing for in that situation is number one is you know don't lose momentum and ensure that you're bringing employees to the solution table too. Mm -hmm. invite them for to a conversation around what kinds of work and what kinds of duties and other duties as assigned even is it unclassified research is it benchmarking is it reading what could you be doing in an unclassified environment or off-site environment to still help continue the mission to move forward and what could you not be doing um, and then thinking about ways also to mitigate barriers to preparedness. So when you look at your policies, look for language that might exclude certain populations. Are accommodations going to be transferable when you work in a different alternative location? Are your workplace policies excluding working parents or caregivers if they happen to have a family member in place? Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things are really going to need to be negotiated. And then emphasizing strong communications between managers and employees, accountability measures, and 
again, practice makes perfect. So you need to be practicing these different ways of working so that when there is an unplanned event or emergency, you'll be able to operate, um, hopefully, as seamlessly as possible. Mika Cross, thanks as always. Thank Great you so to much. have you. Up next, the biggest things that aren't in the military's proposed FY21 budgets. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Defense Department's wish lists and why those programs didn't make the big cut. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The president's budget request for fiscal 2021 includes $705 billion for defense spending. The military's list of unfunded priorities for the year includes almost $18 billion of priorities that didn't make the cut for the main budget. Mackenzie Eaglin is resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. It's great to see you again. What do you think are some of the big hitters on the unfunded uh, priorities list, Mackenzie? Well, what's interesting this year is that the unfunded lists include a variety of procurement and equipment uh, programs, but also things like military construction, facility sustainment and maintenance, range upgrades, for example, for the Air Force. So a lot that has to do with what buildings people are mm -hmm. occupying to do their jobs. What is driving that, do you think? It's all about the wall, the mm -hmm. wall, the wall, the wall. Yeah. So Congress, you know, if you watch the defense hearings this month, basically there is an emerging theme, which is DOD must have too much money if, they, if the White House can continuously take money for the wall. So they're mm -hmm. taking it through a variety of ways, which is reflected in these unfunded lists. Uh, through emergency authority, right, where they can just take it, um, the White House, but also through reprogramming requests, which just came over a couple weeks ago to the Hill. So it's a reprogramming request of $20, but the 21 unfunded lists interestingly match a lot of the 2020 reprogramming requests for DOD money for the uh, southern border wall. So basically the Pentagon is asking for the money back yes. that the, this year that the president moved last year to pay for the work on the wall. It's it's That's right. So it's asking for the money back through a back door, mm. right? Not directly. It's okay. through the, you know, it's, a, it's the next year's money for this year. But what's interesting is this is really turning into quite a political game because the White House is saying, well, we just took money from the ads Congress put onto the defense budget last year, as in beyond our own prerogative, which right. of course is, so you're really seeing this turn into a, a first principles, you know, constitutional standoff almost. Uh, they, members aren't calling it that, but there's growing anxiety on both uh, political parties and both chambers about uh, the continual raiding of the defense piggy bank for the border wall and you're seeing uh, the tensions heighten because each time they go back for more the projects are hurting closer to home including some national guard and reserve priorities as well so it strikes me that that's the big difference though between this year's wish list and previous year's wish list the stuff that's actually on it yes. doesn't seem a whole lot different you and i've both been tracking this for a long time yes. other than the buildings type stuff hardware wise do you see anything on this year's list that struck you as different or odd from I previous think, years? I th well, there is some emergent budget themes that you can pull out from the list. So, for example, the, the single highest priority for the Navy is an attack submarine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a really big $3 billion bill. And why is that their first budget priority when they had told Congress in recent years, we were going to ask for two this year, but they only asked for one? Well, the short answer is they can't afford it. They mm -hmm. do want to. They can't afford to and why is that well 
you see a pitting of conventional forces funding against nuclear and strategic forces funding. The Navy's Columbia class bill is so large this year at $4 billion, it crowded out that extra Virginia class submarine. And so uh, this is reflected in the unfunded lists. You're seeing, again, you know, the facilities and sustainment accounts and military construction were rated for the last, basically, since the Budget Control Act took effect uh, mm -hmm. to help offset some costs for other things. So all of these uh, decisions that have been made in recent years or in half a decade ago are are manifest in this year's request. And the, and the striking thing to me, too, is that the, what we see there, the fact that some of those big pieces of equipment are on the wish list instead of in the main budget, seems to be bearing out what the service chiefs are talking about by saying modernization is so important, recapitalization is so important that we're willing to cut end strength to get there yes. and that seems to be driving this. Am I connecting the dots the right way, do you think? They are. They, you know, it's always that tricky three-legged stool, mm -hmm. readiness, modernization and people. Uh, what you're seeing really is that readiness continues to be the priority. Mm -hmm nuclear recapitalization because it's been deferred so long is the you know, second priority and then conventional forces and people are are fighting for third place uh, in some services there's very small growth I mean just a couple thousand so it's it's essentially a, a flat um, size for the personnel pot going forward which that's a fair statement so you hit the nail on the head at the beginning of this conversation when you said in the budget discussions that are starting on the hill yep. we're at the very beginning of all of this what will you pay attention to as these discussions continue are you going to primarily focus on how do they figure out the wall deal or is there something else that we should watch also there uh, the wall is central to whether or not the defense bill will be moving forward before the election. So that actually really is a big issue. It shouldn't be a defense issue. The mm -hmm. defense secretary has testified. He would prefer this was funded out of DHS, and it's not. So, of course, members are going to use that ammunition against uh, him. Nonetheless, it's going to probably be the central issue that determines whether or not a bill can be signed into law before the start of the fiscal year. Mm -hmm. uh, and so will this be resolved or not? Uh, and then the reprogramming authority. You know, last year Congress said, okay, you know, we're really tired of you doing this Pentagon, but we think it's a White House-led issue. Uh, and of course the White House came back again using this reprogramming. Congress is very, uh, was very gun-shy anyway about not pulling back the reins. It's already a very small amount of money anyway, but I think this is going to be representative of this, uh, the two branches mm -hmm. uh, issue, you know, debate going forward that this will be a central issue to watch. And then again, this balance of conventional versus strategic forces modernization. How are we going to balance those two? Because right now, conventional forces are taking more risk than strategic, although the last decade it was nuclear forces and is there going to be enough money to add back where Congress uh, sees that the deficit was too large. Mackenzie Eaglin, thanks as always, great to see you. My pleasure. Up next, another rewrite of the Pentagon's management structure. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a deep dive on DOD management reform. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. The Army's proposed budget for fiscal year 2021 includes almost $200 million to restore programs the service cut during its night court review last year. For more on why the Pentagon struggles to reduce waste, Peter Levine is here, senior research fellow at the Institute for Defense Analyses, former acting deputy chief management officer. He's author of the new book, Defense Management Reform, How to Make the Pentagon Work Better and Cost Less. Hold your book up there and uh, get yourself a plug. Uh, thank you for sending me a copy of this. I had a chance to read it. And the message that that I took away from this book is that the management reform that you lay out is possible. It's, it's, it, I think there are a lot of folks that think yeah. in an enterprise the size of the Pentagon, it's not even possible to so do I it. lay out a lot of cases where um, management reform has failed, mm -hmm. but I still view it as an optimistic book because there are cases where it succeeded too, and what I try to do is, is, is to talk about what are some of the things that make a difference. Why, does, why have some of the efforts succeeded where mm -hmm. others have failed? So give me examples of some of the successes that you've seen over the years. We've had successes in, um, so the greatest, the, one of the greatest successes we have of management reform goes back to what Goldwater-Nichols, mm -hmm. which made the force a joint force. And I think that, that that's a signal achievement. It changed the way we operated as a military force. And people may not think about that as a management reform, but it required changing personnel systems and training. Uh, it required ch uh, changing staffing. The whole way the military operated changed. And it was... It, w it took a concerted effort over a period of years. Mm -hmm. um, it was resisted initially by senior military leadership, but it was sex successful and it held. And I think that that's a model for other reforms. So Goldwater-Nichols was 86. 86, So yes. 34 years. And we're still seeing some issues with the forces wanting to operate as a sure. joint Sure, you will always force. see issues, and, and no reform is perfect mm -hmm. and no system is perfect. So I don't think we should be discouraged mm -hmm. when we have a management reform and we, and we come back a few years later, later and we see problems because we will never see a perfect system we'll always need to fix and you mentioned uh, I don't know whether you mentioned the the the, the, the cuts that Secretary Esper did in the yes. army and uh -huh. how, how a couple hundred million dollars have been added back I don't think that should be viewed as a failure um, that's an adjustment mm -hmm. and adjustments are, are a sign a sign of good governance not a sign of bad governance see the reason I point out the 34 years of Goldwater Nichols is not to pick nits at the ideas yeah. it's to point out that over the past six eight years or so we've seen any number of reforms aimed at in particular right. at OSD and the management structure there and before even really the boxes have a chance to move, they're moved again. And the question becomes, if it takes that long to do something as important as establish a joint force that really is a joint force, how are we ever going to know when the boxes continue to get moved whether something has time to work? You're absolutely right. Patience is a key to management reform and to, to, to successful management reform. We have to stick with it and, and see how it's working. I think that another example of a good management reform, actually from the same era, is the Packard Commission mm -hmm. reforms when they were implemented in, in the acquisition system. And we've gone through iterations since then in the acquisition system, but there's some basic things that were implemented with the Packard system that have, that have proved successful over the years. Um, a, uh, we're now experimenting with moving away from those, and mm -hmm. we'll see how that works too. Uh, and there are risks that you undertake when you move away from, 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 from a system that's working in some places, but there, there are possibilities too. And you want to, what you want to do is take the best from what you had and move the most, 
and, and the best from the new systems you're putting together and get the, the good new things without losing the things that worked before. A sign of my old age is that I can pull the Packard Commission from 1986 and I can't remember when Beth McGrath became the first DCMO. I believe it was 2009 or 2010, something like it. It was during the Obama administration. You're, that's very impressive, yes. 2009 or 2010 is I have right my because 2009 was when this legislation came into effect and I don't think she was confirmed until 2010. All right, so we're less than 10 years into that idea and last time you were on the program you were here to talk about the potential disestablishment of that office. Right, and my suggestion there consistent with what we've just been talking about is that it's an important an important function to perform it has not been performing as well as people would like mm -hmm. but the the idea the, but the best approach would be to adjust and to figure out what it can do and to adjust the roles and the the processes it uses rather than to abandon it and move on to something else so is that the major message then that you want people to take away from this book is that adjustment makes more sense than revamping and re major restructuring when you want to undertake reform the most important thing to do is to understand the systems and processes that you're trying to reform understand not only what doesn't work but what does work. Mm -hmm. You don't want to fall into the temptation of listing a litany of things that don't work saying see it's broken I'm gonna throw the whole thing out and then substitute something new because you you end up flipping because nothing is ever going to be perfect you end up flipping from one thing to another thing to another thing and you never get a chance to establish a baseline and show what can work mm -hmm. and, and keep it working we have less than a minute left the challenge in an environment like the Defense Department is that you have leaders cycling in and out all the time it's the natural order of things I'm not picking on the vacancies in this particular administration it happens in every administration and the people who start something rarely are the people who are there to finish it. It is a challenge, but you give me another chance to plug my book because <laughs> one of the things that you do to overcome that challenge is to be aware of the history. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that I do in the book is to lay out the history of some of these reform efforts so that people who are coming into these positions now won't be starting with a clean slate without understanding what has gone before. Hold it up one more time. Get I'm a plug happy for to that. do that. There you go. Defense management reform, how to make the Pentagon work better, cost less. Peter Levine, thanks as always, Thank my you, friend. Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.